Coming up on Stu Does America, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Just stop. Just stop talking. You're wrong every single time. We give you yet another example of it. Plus, blacklisted author Blake J. Harris tells us about his new movie and how coronavirus is trying to kill it. And what do you do when you lose your state election and you can't back up your voter suppression claims? Well, if you're Andrew Gillum, apparently you just do a ton of meth. Sounds pretty great. Now's a good time for you to put down your meth, though, and subscribe to Stu Does America. If your hands aren't shaking too badly, you can rate and review us, too, which is how other people can find the show, and they'll actually keep it on the air. Don't forget to hit that little bell on YouTube because it's going to give you a heads up when we post a new video, and it triggers a tiny electric shock in my ankle bracelet, which is kind of fun. And for the ultimate platinum white glove experience, get a blazetv.com subscription. Mm, do it. Just make sure to use the promo code STU because that's how they know that you like this stupid show. Plus, you'll get 10 bucks off. Guys, I mean, I don't want to speak too soon, but I think we might just survive this week. Let's celebrate. Pass the meth. Stu does America. There's a terrible ailment threatening our nation that attacks the eyes, the ears, and the mind. It makes all of us poorer, dumber, and it makes us more likely to find the nearest interstate and lay down in the middle of it at night in dark, non-reflecting clothing. It's not COVID-19, it's AOC. Dr. Ocasio-Cortez has a well-rounded point to make about the COVID-19 crisis on Twitter. She tweets... Want to know one of the major reasons why South Korea has had a stellar rapid response and quickly produced scaled up to 10K tests a day? They have single payer, Medicare for all system. We don't. Please remember why it's so important to fight for health care as a human right. Since so many uh, seem to take AOC seriously and act as if she's not an elaborate experiment in performance art that is crazily spun out of control, Let's take a look at her claim. It's one of our favorite things to do here, of course. You send us your annoying claim on social media, and we get antisocial. Attempting to highlight single-payer healthcare as a solution to the coronavirus uh, situation is one of the four worst points ever made. At no point in this tweet does she come even close to anything that could be considered a rational thought. Everyone with the internet is now dumber for having read it. I award her no points, and may God have mercy on her soul. Let's start at the beginning. Where did COVID-19 come from? The left and the media have done a lot of work trying to intimidate people into silence about the country where it originated. In fact, I'll probably get canceled for mentioning it, so I'll allow some of my esteemed colleagues to lay it out for you. The Wuhan coronavirus has now surpassed the 2003 SARS outbreak. The first U.S. case of Chinese coronavirus was confirmed at her one of her hospitals. Inside that building is the world's first lab-grown copy of the Wuhan coronavirus outside mainland China. The Chinese coronavirus death toll has jumped to at least 26 people. The death toll from the Wuhan coronavirus spiked today. The Chinese virus, the coronavirus that is worrying the whole world. This comes as the Chinese coronavirus death toll has jumped to at least 26 people and sickened at least 835 people. <gasps> Got that? I heard a lot of racism there. I'm a little intimidated. Where did this come from? China. Guess who has single-payer health care? China. Technically, they have a single-payer system, but do allow for small private industry as well, 
which makes their communist government-provided healthcare system slightly more free market than the one AOC has actually proposed. Of course, despite the claims of xenophobia or racism, literally no one on planet Earth blames the Chinese people for the virus. That would be insane. Or most, most doctors, they don't blame them either. The Chinese government is another story. When the virus was actually discovered, the government censored the information and punished the doctor who found it. More than three weeks before it was publicly disclosed, he told other doctors to be careful and try to avoid infection in a group chat. Quote, four days later, he was summoned by the Public Security Bureau, where he was told to sign a letter. In the letter, he was accused of making false comments that had severely disturbed the social order. Ah, so warm, that government. A couple of months later, the virus was raging through China, and the doctor was dead, reportedly from infection of COVID-19. Or a bullet to the head, uh, when no one was looking, one of the two, I'm not sure exactly. When you have a healthcare system controlled by the government, the government controls the healthcare system. And when you have a bad guy running the place, or just set a, you know, kind of have a large list of terrible priorities implemented from above, the state winds up being protected at all costs. The reason you are going to be able to watch Netflix 12 hours a day for the next two months is because of government health care. Who hid the virus? Because the government was embarrassed in China. Now, I'd assume if AOC could form any words after that second bottle of wine, she would probably slur something like, Oh, you can't use China. They're bad. Bad version of socialism. Me no like. Good talky talk, Alexandria. First, I can't believe you actually called them the Chinese government. Racist. How dare you identify where they go? They come from. What's next? Are you going to call them a foreign government? Or are you going to tell me that they're Asian? How dare you? But I'll grant you that China is a uniquely evil place. So who has had the worst experience with COVID-19 outside of China? Italy. Guess who has single payer health care? Italy. Italy's healthcare system has been completely overrun by COVID-19 to the point that they've basically had to turn the country off. No one can go, go in, no one can travel, only grocery stores and banks remain open. They're treating people in hallways. They can't find enough respirators. And according to the New York Times, quote, the gap between resources and the enormous influx of patients forced the doctors to decide not to uh, intubate some very old patients, essentially leaving them to die. We're talking about a country that is basically treating coronavirus patients in bouncy houses or bouncy hospitals. But this realization is that the Italian healthcare system um, and that, you know, that it's so inadequate is actually kind of new, especially for the left and the media. It wasn't too long ago. You could find fawning op-eds about the brilliance of the Italian healthcare system written by American doctors. We used to have, what can Italy teach the rest of the world about health? And now we have, Italy's healthcare system groans under coronavirus, a warning to the world, from teacher to warning in such a short time. Tragic. Of course, part of this uh, is just AOC becoming a victim to her own circular version of logic. She's able to pick up the puzzle pieces, but she can't always figure out how to put them together, you know? For example, we all know the coronavirus problem is just at the beginning here in the United States, but this has been a giant problem all over the rest of the world. So how does that work with this constant AOC talking point? I blame us. I blame this body. Because every single developed country in the world guarantees healthcare as a right except us. Except the United States. Because we can't get it together. 
you almost feel bad for her. I mean, it's weird how almost all other countries have universal health care, but almost all of them have had massive problems with COVID-19. But I can't wait to catch up to the rest of the world on that one. It's going to be exciting. Let's get to the specific country, however. She mentioned in her tweet, South Korea. Have they done a better job at testing than we have? Yeah, pretty much. Honestly, not too long ago, South Korea was testing at a rate of 3,692 people per million. The U.S. was testing at 5 per million. Not 500, but 5. Our rates are improving dramatically now, uh, but South Korea has been testing at a rate 738 times ours, and that's what experts call suboptimal. But when faced with a fact such as this, one approach for AOC to consider in the future would be asking why that is. Why are our rates so low? The development of our tests got caught up in all sorts of bureaucracy. You see, while we don't have a single payer system in the United States, many aspects of the CDC operate like a single payer program. They get their money from government, just like if they were a single payer program. And just like a single payer program, they set up so many rules and standards and regulations that even patients that doctors wanted to test would be rejected. Here's Dr. Todd Island. He's an infectious disease specialist with ABC News laying out the details. The CDC has changed its guidance from a more narrow criteria where you were testing the sicker patients who didn't have the flu and didn't have the other respiratory viruses and also the, those contact tracing, meaning if you were exposed to someone with confirmed COVID-19 and then developed symptoms, those were the, those were the uh, individuals that the state would say, okay, send us their tests. But most people that we wanted testing on did not fall into those categories and we generally they could not accept these tests. Got it? They're only testing an incredibly narrow subsection of suspected cases, along, of course, with anyone on the Utah Jazz, apparently. So we know testing wasn't going very well until very recently. So what happened very recently? Okay, so there's no question that still the demand for testing far exceeds the lab's capacity to test. But there is a silver lining. Up until a few days ago, the state labs were the only labs that could test. And what's happening now is that the private sector has gotten involved. Oh, the private sector. I've heard of them. It's so strange how that happens. But as AOC might say, if she was here and could speak coherently through the Chardonnay, but what about South Korea? Good question. And have another carafe. Why did South Korea do so much better? Because unlike us, they embraced their private sector very early. And that is how they were able to get testing set up quickly and make it widely available. They have now tested over 222,000 people. And while the problem has been significant, they have been able to bend the curve the right way. They also use levels of surveillance that would be completely unconstitutional here, along with a very tight border policy that would have AOC crying concentration camps to any camera available. If AOC were here, she'd likely point out that, see, single pair health care make good dis decision or something like that. I wouldn't be able to understand necessarily through the wine breath. Then she'd belch up some rosé. It's not to say that government health care can't make a good decision. It's just in this case, their good decision was not to use government. In other words, every part of AOC's tweet was incredibly stupid, just like every other thought she has ever had. Remember, kids, alcohol kills brain cells.
Excited to welcome our next guest. He is the best-selling author of Console Wars, about the war between Sega and Nintendo, which you'll be able to see as a full-length documentary in the very near future. Also now out in paperback is Blake's uh, newest book about the virtual reality industry, the history of the future. And I can exclusively reveal tonight that due to the coronavirus, Blake's next book will be The Future Has No Future. Uh, Blake, it's uh, Blake Harris, and welcome to the program. How's it going, man? <laughs> I love that cover. That's great. Uh, it's, I mean, it's good. It's as good as it can be. Uh, uh, I don't know if the audience knows, but uh, I was supposed to be there in person. Not only that, but my feature film that you just mentioned, Console Wars, the documentary, uh, was supposed to premiere at South by this week, and you were going to come. I was very excited to see you in person and show off this thing I've spent the past year on. But uh, here we are. So I'm good. I'm as good as I can be. I'm feeling healthy. But it's a very weird time to be alive. It is a weird time. It's been a weird week. I, I almost can't even believe we actually made it to the end of it. Um, let's go back here for a minute because you're right. You're supposed to be here. You're supposed to be sitting in this chair instead of just a TV with a, a random disjointed body. And you, you're supposed to be here. You're, uh, you have South by Southwest, which is a gigantic festival. If you don't know what it is, it's you know this big arts festival, technology, all sorts of cool, really cool stuff. And you're going to do this is your directorial debut. It's your first book turning into a movie. This is a huge moment for you. And then what happens? Do you get a call? Do you get a text? What happens? Um, yeah, I mean, I definitely feel a little bit like what I've spent the past year of my life on between doing all these edits for the history of the future, which we'll get into, and the, the working every day on the console war stock that like in one fell swoop, uh, this thing I've been looking forward to came to an end. But uh, yeah, I guess what happened was I usually keep my phone on like most people and I'm annoying during meetings and lunches and all that. But I turned it off for an hour and a half last Friday, exactly a week ago. And uh, I was having lunch with a friend. I turned it on. I had 23 messages. Uh, so somewhere along the way, I realized that this thing had been canceled. Um, and I guess, you know, I mean, it, it stinks. Uh, it was probably the right decision to make, though. And then I, I was just reflecting with that friend that we were texting beforehand, um, like 10 minutes ago, saying, I can't believe that was just a week ago, because at the time I was kind of being a little uh, a little whiny, a little a little <laughs> bummed that my directorial debut was not going to happen. And then all of a sudden, like three days later, the NBA season's canceled yeah. and NCAA tournament's canceled and there's travel bans. And I'm like, all right. I'll, uh, at least, as I told my agent, at least I have a great book and a great movie. And at some point in the future, there'll be, there, you know, that will come out in a big way. But yeah, uh, who would have saw this coming? I know yeah. it's, it's, it's weird. It, it kind of went from because we had a couple of events coming up as well. And it went from, gee, I don't know, they would never cancel that to, oh, obviously they canceled that so fast. And it all seems so obvious now that all these things should be canceled. It is a, it's just, it, it's a weird thing. I, I don't, I've never experienced anything like the last couple of weeks. Yeah, I completely agree. Uh, and, and I'm someone who, uh, I try to never leave my apartment. I'm like already doing the uh, coronavirus <laughs> protocol all the time. I stay in here and write my book. But like, even for me, it's kind of weird. Um, and it's definitely, I, mean, I live in New York and uh, I was in Manhattan two days ago. Well, maybe I shouldn't have been, but like, it's, it's just dead there in the city that never sleeps, but people are at least napping. Mm. It's a weird time, but um, I guess, you know, I always try to look on the bright side of things. It's a time to reflect on the past year for me and a time to spend more time with your loved ones. I mean, my wife's going to be working from home, so at least we'll uh, get to spend some time together. That's cool. Well, we're going we're to have to send you a, one of our uh, our T-shirts that just say, sorry, can't make it self-quarantined. Um, you know, I think it would be something <laughs> that you might like in your normal everyday life. 
Um, uh, we yeah. have uh, your book because it, it's funny because I mean you're we've been we go back a long way now. I mean you were back on the wonderful world of Stew, one of the one of the first seasons about your book Console Wars, which is a, is a story. It's a fascinating story, and it's about kind of the battle between Sega and Nintendo. This is a va- ba- this is a battle that was very key to my life uh, growing up as I played both of those. Uh, Basically, constantly. I, I, I had I played a lot of video games back in the day, um, and you know, you go. Can you kind of walk people through the the time period there, kind of the dynamics around it? Because it's it's really not a, a necessarily a video game story. It's a story that's a lot bigger than that. Yeah, absolutely. So. Um, I was born in 1982. I grew up on the front lines of that console war between Sega and Nintendo. Um, At the time when Sega entered the marketplace with the 16-bit Sega Genesis, Nintendo had 95-plus percent of the market. Um, And and really what this is is a business story. But to your point, it's not necessarily for people who like video games, although they were certainly enjoy it. And it's not even necessarily for people who like business stories. It's just this great human story about it. It starts with this guy named Tom Kalinske, who had been the president and CEO of Mattel, helped... uh, Revive Barbie, helped create He-Man Masters of the Universe, and then he was brought into Sega when they were just an afterthought and took them from 5% of the market to 55% of the market and did all these wild and crazy Moneyball-esque things and was able to surpass Nintendo for a period of time before flaming out. And, uh, you know, I I was just very lucky. Um, I worked on it for three years, and there was honestly not a day I didn't wake up or there wasn't a day where I didn't find some new information that made me psyched to keep working on it, which, as you know, from working on various projects, that's not often the case with long term projects. No. Yeah. I, I, I lost interest in this show, like after the second episode. I'll be honest with you. I mean, <laughs> I'm just uh, I'm just phoning it. Yeah. In. And it's just like like I mean, it's it's like so much of life is kind of what you just described, like where after the fact, everything the, the outcome seems obvious. So, of course, it seems obvious that. Um, you know, there'd be multiple video game players, but there was a time where Nintendo was not just the biggest game in town, they were the only game in town. They were literally taking out ads that said there's no such thing as a Nintendo because people were referring to any video game as a Nintendo the same way we refer to tissues as Kleenexes and hot tubs as jacuzzis. And like, it was inconceivable that another company would challenge Nintendo, let alone let alone actually surpass them. And Sega did these crazy things like, for example, uh, retailers like Walmart huge retailer wouldn't carry Sega products because it would piss off Nintendo. And then Nintendo um, would, you know, their next shipment would get lost or, you know, (laughs) they ended up, by the way, getting uh, sued for um, antitrust issues and found guilty. Um, So they did. So these sort of rumors were very real. And then uh, Sega decided to open up a Sega Genesis store in Bentonville, Arkansas, across the street from the fl- where uh, Walmart headquarters is, across the street from the fl- flagship of Walmart, and uh, just opened up a store where people could play Genesis for free. They didn't even sell anything. And it was just uh, this guerrilla marketing campaign that got under Walmart's skin, and it became so popular, and people were going into the Walmart store asking how they could buy a Sega Genesis, and eventually Walmart relented. And it was just, you know, clever strategies like that. Which as a kid, or even as an adult, you don't think about that. You sort of imagine that the video game world is this meritocracy where the best consoles are getting the appropriate amount of shelf space yeah. and the best games are the ones that get made. But as we know, that's not how anything in life works. It's always about connections and playing the angle and leverage and all that. And uh, so behind the scenes of our childhood, this was all going on. Yeah, it really is interesting because in, in a way, uh, there's so many things that relate to today where it's it's hard to cut through, right? There's so many things going on, so many advertising messages and that was a big part of Sega's strategy here, which was to figure out ways, sort of like, uh, you know, uh, you're in a battlefield instead of the British kind of just walking right towards you. They found the way to kind of run through the, the, they weren't wearing the uniforms. They ran around through the trees. No one expected them coming. And they really like kind of changed the way this entire industry operated. 
Absolutely. And in a few ways, I mean, one of their greatest tactics and what you're just and what you're describing was like they, they hid their message in plain sight and they were able to reach the desired audience. Like this was something I was talking about um, last week when I was doing the color correction when I thought we were finishing the movie. But uh, we we're just talking about the messaging and how they had this welcome the next level campaign, which people probably remember for the famous Sega screams at the yes. end. But there was also text at the end that said welcome the next level, but didn't say it. Um, you know, it wasn't like one word per line. The letters were all jumbled and it kind of. Um, you know, the idea and with a lot of the campaign was that they could do really quick cuts and they do these things that kids would understand, that teenagers would understand, but parents wouldn't get. So it was like the secret language for kids. And Sega really tapped into that and empowering this teenage audience. Um, and, and, and to the point, like the impact of this battle, it, it changed the future of video games. When I when I first got into gaming, Nintendo was the only game in town, like I said, and they were the only game in town being sold in KB Toys and Toys R Us. It was a toy. It was like literally a toy. Mm. And Sega turned video games into consumer electronics for all ages, and clearly that's where video games have gone. Yeah, for sure. Um, they went a lot further than that, though, and I want to come back. I want to talk to you about um, the history of the future, uh, your book as well, because this goes into, um, if you don't know this story, it's an amazing one, about virtual reality, and it has a very close tie and a bizarre one uh, to Donald Trump and the Trump administration. We'll back with uh, Blake Harris here in just a second. Talking to Blake Harris. He is the author of Console Wars and the movie coming out soon, as well as The History of the Future, uh, Oculus, Facebook, and the Revolution that Swept Virtual Reality. A fascinating story. The same thing you know we talked about with Console Wars. It's a, it's a great just business story and an, an interesting sort of um, rise up from you know pulling yourself up by your bootstraps, right? Tell the tell a story about how virtual reality as we know it today got started. Sure. Uh, first, I want to just explicitly and very gratefully thank. The viewers and listeners, and uh, and and I just mean that so sincerely because as some of them who might be aware of my book or might have seen me on your show a few times last year, the, when I came on with you and Glenn last year, my book had been out for about five weeks. As you alluded to, it, the book takes a political slant towards the end. The main character is Gasp, revealed to be a Trump supporter, like you know half of America. But that was unacceptable <laughs> in Silicon Valley. He got fired. We'll get into all that. Um, but I uh, myself am a liberal. I don't like Donald Trump, but I reported honestly on what happened. And my book had been out for five weeks. Not a single place had reported on it, reviewed it. Um, you know, after hundreds had reviewed my first book and most liked it. Um, and and the book was just sort of uh, dying. And and after coming on the show and and you guys just really taking an interest in it and asking the viewers to consider it. Uh, it went up to number two on Amazon, at least in wow. the U.S., and, you know, that's higher than anything I'll ever write will go. And and uh, not only was that fulfilling and satisfying, and again, I'm grateful for that, but um, this new edition of the paperback has 70 more pages, and that's because there was still more I wanted to report on, and the publisher certainly wouldn't have allowed me to do so if the book hadn't done so well, and that was very directly a result of your awesome listeners, fans, viewers. So I'm not worthy. Thank you very much. <laughs> I, I had to get that out of the way because it needed to be said, and, and I'll never forget that. And if you ever need a favor, or Glenn ever needs a favor, you know where to find me. Oh, that's, that's very cool. But, I mean, you really did a, a lot of work, and you did something that is not common. I mean, you were willing to kind of go where the story was and be honest about it and tell the truth, even if it was going to sink your book. You, I don't know if you thought about that at the time as much, but... I mean, if it was going to make a difference, uh, you know, you decided to just go ahead with it anyway and tell the story the way it was. 
kind of walk people through uh, the, the background if they haven't seen Jan before. I mean, it's just got, I can't do the same. It just seems so crazy to me. It's like, you know, you're at a crosswalk and then the white sign says walk and you walk and it's like, oh my God, you did the right thing. Like, of <laughs> course, if you're, writing, if you're a journalist and you're writing a story, of course you follow the story and tell the truth. That should not be like a remarkable thing. That should be true. like what we all do. But, uh, but yeah, so um, like the Sega story, this was an incredible underdog rags to riches story. This one starts in 2012 with Palmer Lucky, this brilliant, eccentric uh, entrepreneur, video game player, uh, dreamer who wants to create a cheap virtual reality headset because he can't afford one because in, at age 19 in 2012, he's living in a trailer in Long Beach, California. And so he's able to sort of crack the code and create a piece of hardware that allows you to experience virtual reality for like one-tenth the cost of anything else out there. And uh, he starts this company called Oculus, and uh, he works with uh, some serial entrepreneurs and gets a big boost of support and uh, software assistance from John Carmack, the creator of uh, Doom and other famous games that did software. Mm -hmm. And uh, they sort of launched this virtual reality revolution. Um, and, uh, you know, I guess we can talk about whether VR is here to stay and whether that revolution will be successful in the long run. But it was certainly successful enough to catch Mark Zuckerberg's attention at Oculus less than two years in existence, really like 18 months. It ends up selling to Facebook for $3 billion. And uh, the story sort of at first takes a turn just from going from this rah, rah, rags to riches startup to sort of becoming the man and, you know, sort of being at a company like Facebook. And then... Um, like I mentioned earlier, it was revealed that Palmer Lucky, this eccentric dreamer, brilliant guy, the founder of the company, the face of the company, uh, is revealed to be a Trump supporter. And uh, it's unsurprisingly revealed in the uh, least truthful way possible. Uh, you know, there's a story that comes out that says that Palmer Lucky is responsible for every terrible meme that you'd seen on the internet during the election season. So every homophobic, misogynistic, anti-Semitic meme. Palmer Lucky is responsible, the ultimate scapegoat. Of course, he, in the end, he was responsible for nothing. None of these articles that even claim that showed a meme because there wasn't any, but that <laughs> didn't stop people from running with the story. And just like a perverse game of telephone within hours, uh, you know, the Daily Beast's erroneous report became just the gospel. And I, I still find it funny that I'll, I'll talk to reporters, the few that still are willing to talk to me. Um, and, and I'll say like, did you read the book? Here's the evidence. Um, and they'll be like, yeah, but the other guy said that this is what happened. I'm like, yeah, but I actually talked to people and I actually had the evidence and they just said it. Why, why would you believe that? Um, and so anyway, uh, Palmer ended up getting fired the other big scandalous thing was, uh, you know, Facebook's been involved in a lot of controversies over the past couple of years. Mark Zuckerberg is always in a place of position of plausible deniability. You know, uh, he didn't know what was going on. They're going to clean up that procedure. But the day that it came out that uh, Palmer had donated ten thousand dollars to a, an organization that allegedly was making terrible memes, which wasn't true. They were just putting up billboards and they'd only ever put up one that was uh, it said too big to jail and had a picture of Hillary Clinton. So, you know, <laughs> nothing too salacious there. No. Um, but Mark would not allow Palmer originally wrote a statement saying that he was a Trump supporter. And here's what was true. Here's what was not. Here's why he believes in Trump. He was not allowed to post that. Um, and instead, Zuckerberg directly wrote a statement for him claiming that he that Palmer was supporting Gary Johnson in the election. <laughs> he wasn't. Um, which he wasn't, and which is also illegal, by the way. But the legality is much worse than the ethics of it. That, like, the CEO of one of the most powerful companies in the world won't even let a, a, a talented employee talk about being a supporter of Trump. And, and like, there's a million reasons that's a shame. But one of them too is just like 
I, I you know, I don't have too many friends that are Trump supporter. I live in good elite coastal liberal bubble of New York. Mm-hmm. Uh, but like when Palmer, who's very intelligent and very thoughtful, told me that he's a Trump supporter, my first thought wasn't, oh, he's a bad guy. It was, oh, that's really interesting. I, I'm curious why a smart guy like Palmer would think that. And talking to him helped me understand, you know, the pros and cons to this. And and yeah. like, I feel like that discussion would have been very helpful. Um, and then Palmer was fired. Like, I was trying to think of a good cop during the break. It's like, I was thinking, oh, it's like Derek Jeter being cut by the Yankees. But it was like, I was like, all right, Dirk Nowitzki getting yeah. cut from the Mavericks. Yeah. In his heyday. Like, like Palmer was just the top employee there. He was the soul. He was the face. He was everything. It was inconceivable that he would be fired, but he dared to do the one thing that you can't do in Silicon Valley, which is be conservative. It's amazing. It really is an amazing story. And I will say you, 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 you go through a lot of the detail there, but the detail, there's tons of it in here, including the actual emails back and forth with the Daily right. Beast reporter, uh, if emails with, with Mark Zuckerberg, Facebook there, you have tons and tons of evidence. This is all locked up completely there's no you're, there's, you're not guessing at any of this which is incredible Absolutely. Um, yeah. so let me I mean, like, you, go ahead we have about ahead, a, we have ahead. about a minute and a half left i was to say uh it became very clear to me that i didn't want to be the thing that i hated about the world the terrible journalism so i needed to do a much better job and i also didn't want this to be blake harris liberal journalist opinion i wanted yeah. readers to judge for themselves you, here's the evidence. You can figure out what happens. I think the conclusion is pretty obvious, but yeah. I wanted to give the evidence out there. Can you give me a little, we got about a minute left. Can you give me like a tease to what's in the 70 new pages? Uh, sure. So there's an epilogue, uh, which includes uh, smoking gun evidence, more direct evidence of uh, Mark Zuckerberg lying to Ted Cruz during the congressional investigation um, in or the congressional hearings in uh, 2018. Um, and then there's just a lot more of the, uh, a lot more into Facebook, you know, for example, even just like the even little there's ad, there's more emails and there's just anecdotes. Like the first day the Oculus employees are going through orientation, they're taught the Facebook slogans, which are uh, very cult-ish. <laughs> and you know, one of them is like "Bring your authentic self to work," which I always thought was funny because it's you know it's very Animal Farm esque. Like "Bring your authentic self to work." Dot dot dot. You know, unless your authentic self has the wrong political yeah. opinions. <laughs> like there's such a hypocrisy there. Um and and. Yeah, like I finally feel like the story is complete. And, and again, I'm just grateful to your listeners and your viewers for helping to make that happen. It really does make a difference. Like, uh, that I'll is really cool. That. We, we got to make sure Ted Cruz sees this. I don't know if he, if he knows he was lied to in this congressional uh, testimony. He, he may want to take that up with Mark. Uh, this is the book is uh, The History of the Future, Oculus, Facebook, and the Revolution that Swept Virtual Reality. Blake J. Harris, a generally good guy. And I can't wait to see the movie. Uh, do you know when it's actually going to come out? I do not, but I will definitely invite you because uh, we we missed you uh, tonight when it would have been, and uh, I, wanted, I would like for you to be amongst the first to see it. You've been a big supporter of mine since the beginning, since back in the days when me coming on The Blaze was not a political decision. It was just two dudes who like games talking. Absolutely, man. Blake Harris, thanks for coming on the program. Back in a second. I think every day we're just going to have a nice long list of cancellations from coronavirus, like we're announcing school closings on a snowy day up north. Remember listening to those? If you've lived up north, you listen to the radio stations and they would be like, oh, uh, Clinton schools are canceled and Madison schools are on an hour delay and Westbrook schools are on two hour delay. That's the radio I got into. I wanted to do that. That was really where I wanted to get to. And unfortunately, I got on this, you know, I mean, the blaze. I mean, come on. Didn't even exist when I was a kid. <laughs> it doesn't even count. Um, Louisiana is the first uh, state to postpone their coming election over coronavirus fears. 
Uh, that is something I think you'll see repeated. They're not going to be the only one, I don't think, unless this uh, turns around in a way that is not expected by experts. It's it's possible, though, I guess. But, it, it you know, it's just going to be kind of weird to go vote. I think they keep saying, don't go into big crowds, whatever you do, but go ahead, get in a little tiny booth right after someone else does and touches all the buttons. That'll work out well. Let's all get into the tiniest cramped area we can and all put our hands on the same thing over and over again. That sounds like a good idea. Um, I feel like they're probably going to delay more of these things. I know my kids school was they had uh, spring break, which everybody in Texas kind of goes to spring break on the same week. So they've extended it another week, basically. That's kind of what you're going to see, I think, around the country. Ohio canceled all their schools for, I think, three weeks. Um, this, is going to be, this is going to be a weird next couple of months. Uh, we're going to try to be on the air every single day, um, you know, unless I oversleep or something. Uh, but we're trying to be on the air every single day to make sure that we can give you all the updates and whatever uh, is important. And then, you know, look, the radio show will do all that. Glenn will do that for you. All these other shows will do that. We're going to at least try to give you a moment to laugh during the day because you're going to have a lot of TV to watch or a lot of podcasts to listen to. So we might as well at least give you something uh, fun, hopefully at some point, while we're giving you all the news. Um, we were interested to see how MSNBC was treating coronavirus, and they had a very interesting opinion uh, as to what the re end result of the, the virus would be. I don't think the Biden campaign could have expected that the White House, that President Trump would essentially gift wrap them such an opportunity uh, when they scheduled this remarks to do what they've been really wanting to do for this entire campaign, which is offer voters a really side by side comparison of the type of presidential leadership Joe Biden would offer and has experienced in the White House for eight years himself versus what we see from President Trump. Now, you know, this has been kind of promoted as uh, he was saying that Biden uh, was getting a gift by the coronavirus, he's really saying by the speech that Trump gave, that wasn't exactly well received. His press conference today, I think, was a lot better and much more his speed. They keep sticking him in the Oval Office. It's just not his game, you know? Everyone's got things they can do. You know, some people can go and talk into, you know, the, you're much more of a person who wants to get on stage. You can talk in front of a big audience. Some people like the small groups. Some people like clubs. Some people like you know, Irish pubs. I, everyone's got something they can do better than, uh, than other things. And, and, and that's Trump. I don't, I don't think he's very good, frankly. At the Oval Office thing. It's not his game. Him in front of an audience, him firing back and forth with reporters, he did much better, I thought, today. Um, Biden did uh, tweet and try to take advantage of this big moment. He's trying to paint uh, Trump as this evil guy, and he says, A wall will not stop the coronavirus. Banning all travel from Europe or any part of the world will not stop it. This disease could impact every nation and any person on the planet, and we need to combat it. So Dr. Joe Biden lets us know that, look, banning travel from Europe, from other places is not going to help the situation. Let me just give you a quick word from uh, Tony uh, Fauci. He is uh, America's leading infectious disease expert. The travel ban has helped for this? I, I think it absolutely has. I believe if we did not do that with China early on. What about with Europe? When well, a lot of communities? All right. Well, I think that was a prudent choice. We spent a lot of time thinking about it, discussing it, about whether we should do it. And it was the right public health call. And here's the numerical reason why. If you look back early on, Chinese travelers who were infected seeded not only the United States, but countries in Europe, including Italy. If you look today at the majority of cases that are new cases, not old ones, new cases throughout the world, the majority of them are from Europe, Europe to other countries. If you look in the United States at states that have new cases, the majority of them are coming from that region. It was based on that 
that the travel restriction was suggested and accepted. This does kind of blow up the whole narrative that we've been hearing forever. If you remember the travel ban from mostly Muslim nations. Uh, well, here he's got a different reason. It's not a terrorism concern. It's a, a disease concern. So he's taking the same approach. Kind of makes him consistent from last time. And the fact that the experts are backing him up on this kind of should shame the media a little bit, shouldn't they? They're the ones always saying, listen to the experts, put them on, let them do the talking, let them make the decisions. Well, that's what they said helped. And stepping back from the disease experts and the virus experts, don't we all just know this? Don't we all just freaking know that if you have a country that's having an outbreak of a very infectious uh, virus, it's very contagious, you're not going to stop people from that country from flying into your country? Like, these are very basic things. It's not nothing, nothing against the Chinese people. They didn't, they didn't create the disease. This is just an obvious thing. You don't want people traveling from that region. And if you see, we've been told so many times that Donald Trump is uh, basically a, uh, a Nazi. Uh, well, if I remember right, the Nazis really liked, loved their white Europeans. They thought that they were great. And Trump blocked them now, too, because he's concerned about people from that region, which is the new hotbed for this virus. Well, you can just hope that we don't become the new hotbed. Uh, that's what we're hoping for. We're hoping to try to stop that. They did make, if you didn't see the press conference today, they did announce a bunch of new things that they're going to try to do, some economic things. Uh, they, they do believe finally we're at that point where the testing is at a level uh, that medical professionals are comfortable with, or at least they're getting there within the next week or so. Uh, we've already expanded the tests dramatically. Uh, so it is improving. However, that is going to give you, and I talked about this yesterday, probably a two to three week window where you're being restricted heavily in some ways, depending on where you live. Your kids might be out of school. You might be not be going to work. You're going to get a little frantic, probably a little, uh, a little bit. You're going to feel like a shut in. Um, and then at the same time, the incidence of this disease or of this virus being uh, confirmed in people is going to increase at that time. And it's going to feel like these things are not working. We've seen it in country after country after country, though. This is what has worked. And you're seeing, I would say mostly, the American people doing this voluntarily. Kind of excited. Yeah, look, I don't want to do this. I'm not, I'm not thrilled about it, but I'm going to do it because it's the right thing to do. Um, now, when Biden, so I mean, Biden's analysis, I think, is pretty weak there. But one of the things that he can do is maybe bring on someone uh, with a good reputation to help him as his vice presidential choice. And one of the big people who's been talked about for a while is up and coming Democratic star Andrew Gillum. Now, Andrew Gillum was uh, he was in Florida, ran for governor. I this was one race. I remember that uh, election night. I got wrong. I thought Gillum was going to win that race. I was surprised, actually, on that one. DeSantis winning that race was a bit of a surprise that night. And Gillum was a, supposed to be the rising star. He was the guy. He was way too left for me to vote for, certainly. Um, but he's certainly shown a lot of promise for the Democratic Party. And he was a guy that they talked about maybe running for president, maybe being a VP choice. Um, minor issue with that came from last night. Um, a, man, um, a man named uh, Aldo Mejas, 56 years old, he uh, had booked a room for the night at a hotel. And he met another man, Travis Dyson, 30 there now they don't actually state that they came together mayhas told officers he had booked a room for the night and had met dyson later in the day okay mayhas said he got to the hotel shortly after 11 and found dyson and gillum inside the room under the influence 
of an unknown substance. Now, if I'm reading into this a little bit, it seems like maybe uh, guy one uh, got the hotel, left for some reason, met guy two, brought guy two back to the hotel, left again, and then Andrew Gillum just kind of comes in. And I mean, I, I, I don't know the whole situation, but that doesn't seem like the right thing to do. I mean, it seems like he's stepping in on something there. Just gonna, I'm just, just saying. Dyson appeared at the hotel room, um, uh, he, and he opened the door. So guy two opens the door for guy one. And then he promptly collapsed on the bed. Gillum, the rising star of the Democratic Party, was vomiting in the bathroom. Mayhas, uh, guy one and guy two uh, were having issues. Guy two was having trouble breathing. He started vomiting. They called 911. Uh, they started CPR. Officials tried to speak to Gillum, but he was too inebriated to respond. Um, Gillum has a, an excuse for this, of course. He said, I was in Miami last night for a wedding celebration when first responders were called to assist one of my friends. While I had too much to drink, I want to be clear, I've never used methamphetamines. They did find some methamphetamines in the room. Probably not as much of a rising star in the Democratic Party uh, as he used to be. Minor issue there. But there is one star who is always a rising star in the Democratic Party. And since we have kind of have an AOC theme tonight, let's give you an update. Hey, hey, what do you say? How is Alexandria a victim today? <laughs> yes, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, always a victim. Everyone in the squad is always a victim of something. You might think their defining characteristic is socialism or just really being annoying, but no, it's the fact that they can always find a way to make themselves into a victim, including in a recent election where Bernie Sanders lost. Watch. So how can you say the progressive position is still prevailing nationwide when Joe Biden is winning mm -hmm. so much? Well, I think one thing that we that isn't being talked about is the rampant voter suppression in this country. Um, right there in Ann Arbor, where we had that uh, rally, mm -hmm. those kids were waiting three hours in line to vote in Michigan. And so when we talk about who's turning out and who's not turning out, we absolutely... So just to be clear, you're saying that you think voters didn't get to vote that wanted to vote in Michigan? Absolutely. You know, obviously... Obviously, there's also more that we need to do in terms of turning out youth voters. It's uh, we need to make sure that we're inspiring young people to turn out. But when you do turn out, you should not be waiting three, four, seven hours in order to vote. Three, four, seven. Who knows? You don't want to wait that many hours. Five or six is fine. But three, four, seven. Don't do that. Um, interesting thing about that is usually the left is telling us that black the black vote is being suppressed. So they always say over and over and over again, the black vote is being suppressed, the black vote is being suppressed. Well, the black vote is the reason why Joe Biden is winning. Uh, he's killing everybody with the black vote. Um, and the younger vote is the ones that weren't showing up. But now they're the ones that are being suppressed because in this particular circumstance, that's what makes Alexandria feel like a victim. So that's what she does. She always finds her way to be the one who's who the man is coming after, even when the man she's defending is a 78 year old um, guy from Vermont. So there you go. Uh, that's how Alexandria, of course, was a victim today. Hey, hey, what do you say? How is Alexandria a victim today? Be safe this weekend. Just just do the basics. Wash your hands. Uh, try not to lick too many doorknobs. Uh, don't do drugs in other people's bathrooms. These are basic tips. I want you to be safe this weekend. We'll see you on Monday.